From Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're bringing you stories, interviews, and audio diaries from teenagers and young adults stuck at home with nothing better to do. I'm Atme producer Rowan Pickard, recording this on my computer in my home since the Atme studios closed for the time being. Contact tracing is an essential part of combating the spread of COVID-19. Not only do contact tracers work to discover where a person infected with the coronavirus may have contracted it, they also attempt to inform others about possible infection. But there is a lot more to the complicated work that they do. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Annie Thomas. She's been a nurse for about 15 years, and currently she is the project manager for the UAA Surge Contact Tracing Team. She is also the owner of Managing Me Enterprises, which does retreats for teens to help them build community cohesion and resilience. Atme producer Ryan Danigal spoke with Annie about the ins and outs of contact tracing, the difficulties in obtaining pertinent information, how the coronavirus has affected her family, and much more. They spoke on November 5th, 2020. Could you explain what contact tracing is? Absolutely. So contact tracing is uh, an effort to stop the community spread of different um, illnesses. And it can happen with any variety of things that are a public health concern. Um, For the coronavirus specifically, we work to look at um, where people are getting infected um, and who they might have passed it to. Um, We also right now with such a big um, surge in cases, we spend a lot of time just educating people to understand how long their isolation periods or quarantine periods should be. Um, If we are um, not contacting all their contacts, then asking them to contact them, um, letting them know what precautions they need to take. And then we also hook people up with different community resources if they have needs that would prevent them from being able to isolate or quarantine. Okay, so what is your specific role in that whole crowd of (laughs) things to do? Well, it's been pretty crazy. Uh, I started as a contact tracer and a team lead back in August, and um, it kind of evolved from there. I now um, am in charge of about 130 tracers. Um, And so on a day-to-day basis, I try to make sure that our scheduling is is, uh, in order, that everybody is up to date on um, just new policy announcements and that kind of thing. I meet with our team leads and our coordinators um, to make sure that things are going well with the teams and to troubleshoot what's happening there. Um, Look at what we need to do for training. Um, And we have invented something called the shadow lab where we train people um, through a series of simulations um, to be able to get on the schedule and get tracing. So that's been really fun. Um, We also recently created um, something that we call Strike Force. Um, And this is uh, a team that is able to do any of the activities that um, our team would be called on to do. So we provide a lot of support to um, the overall state efforts. And Strike Force enters cases into the computer system ComCare that keeps track of all of the um, all of the coronavirus cases in Alaska. Um, they assign cases to teams um, that work with us, and then um, they can also do case interviews and daily monitoring calls. So they can kind of do anything. We have. Uh, two teams that do just interviewing with cases who are new. So they call and, um, you know, talk to them about how they're doing and, and what they need, that kind of stuff. And then we have a team that does daily monitoring calls. Um, so I kind of kind of make sure that hopefully we're staying on track and that everybody has what they need to be successful. I also spend a lot of time just because contact tracing is 
pretty stressful um, and it can be pretty emotionally impactful, uh, especially when all of us are living through the pandemic as well as trying to help. So um, I spend a lot of time trying to find ways to invest in the mental health of our team to make sure that everybody's getting the rest that they need, that they have um, mental health resources that could help them out and just um, listening to what the concerns are. So you mentioned something about a shadow lab and the simulations. What 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 kind of simulations do y'all go through? Are they like super intense? Are they like high octane like stuff? Like that's awesome. I love what kind that. Of those are? I love that so much. So um, when we originally start, so what we did to write the curriculum for the shadow lab was just kind of look at what the basic elements of doing a monitoring call and doing a contact interview would be. Because before people would go through the contact training course um, and then they would get trained in kind of the real world by actually shadowing other tracers who were already working and listening to calls. But the problem there was we couldn't necessarily say what kinds of interviews and things they were going to listen to. Were they, you know, did they get to see the full um, picture of what an interview could be? Was it a too short of one to really be helpful? Like what was going on? And so we created the shadow lab so that the people on shift could just um, focus on contact tracing. And so that everybody who is being trained could get a really um, consistent experience. And so at first we wrote up all kinds of really complex scenarios because you can change things up, you know, um, with you know who was in contact with who when and are they in state or out of state right now and did they fly on a plane and um, do they live in a congregate setting all these different factors that can make it pretty um, pretty intense but we found that people weren't really getting the the picture of what just what it means to just do interviewing and contact tracing so we've simplified it down a lot um, and the instructors will come up with a scenario give a little bit of information. And then the person who is acting as the tracer um, just talks to them, just like a phone call. We're all working remotely. We, none of us have ever actually met in person for the most part. I think maybe a couple, like maybe a handful have met in person, but almost nobody. Um, and so it's just like a real call um, because it's the same kind of thing um, that you're gonna be doing. And um, then the students also get to take turns being the patient. And that's helpful because they see what it feels like to be the person who's getting the call, which I think is really valuable too. You ever feel like a super detective while you're doing this? Like, all right, you know, we need to come to the case about this. Oh yeah. Actually, the front of our manual has kind of like a businesswoman um, with a shadow behind her of a superhero cape, which is sort of really fun. Um, and we, it's a super collaborative process. There are situations that come up all the time that even people who have been working on the team um, since July, when we really got going, um, want to consult each other about. So it's very much a, hey, this came up and what would you do about this? Or what do you think about this? Or, you know, how, how would you explain this situation. So it is very detective-like. <laughs> Could you give me like a walkthrough of the process of doing a single person's contact tracing from them, from like the point of them testing positive for corona and then to be cleared? Like when do you stop and when do you start? So contact tracing in Alaska is coordinated by the state of Alaska. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different little groups that work underneath their umbrella. So if someone tests positive, those results are sent to the um, Department of Epidemiology, and then they are, their information, their basic information, when they tested positive, um, their name, their address, their phone number, the stuff we need to get in contact with them is entered into the system. Um, and then at that point, the state of Alaska gets a list of of names that are, are ready. And um, our, our supervisors also have access to that list. So it goes into the what's called the unassignment cases pile. Um, all the different contact tracing teams can pull from this pile and the state of Alaska kind of organizes who's taking what cases um, so that it can kind of not be pure chaos, which we really appreciate. <laughs> um, 
Then uh, in the mornings for our team, we assign them either to um, the blue team or the green team, which are um, our interviewing teams. And uh, then the team leads on those teams assign um, cases out to the tracers. There's usually between six and 12 tracers on a shift. And there's two shifts of four hours each. So we usually have between 12 and 24 people on a team. Um, and between the two teams, they're doing around 100 cases a day. Um, so they do, they're pretty busy um, when they're doing stuff. And um, they call and get the information um, from uh, the case, uh, just making sure sometimes the cases don't know that they're positive yet, um, because it depends on how the testing site reports those results. Um, sometimes they wait for the, this, the health department to, op, um, to notify, and sometimes they've already notified, so we check that. Um, we check and see what their risk levels are. So. Um, do they have health conditions that kind of complicate it and put them at more risk for having a more serious case of COVID? Um, are they in an age range that puts them in a higher risk? Do they live in a setting, a congregate setting is what we call it, that has a lot of other people in it that have a high possibility of also getting sick and becoming what we would call a cluster, um, which is just a whole bunch of cases in one place. Um, they look at um, who they live with um, again, if they have the resources to be able to stay um, in their homes for the isolation period, we let them know what the isolation period is um, and how long they need to stay and what the criteria would be for coming out of isolation. And then if we're doing full contact tracing, which the prioritization changes based on how many tracers we have and how many cases we have. So if there's a lot more cases um, and not enough tracers, we kind of pare down what information we get. But when we're doing full contact tracing, um, we do what's called a source investigation and then a um, infectious period investigation. And the source investigation looks at who someone might have been in contact with for the two weeks before they got sick, um, before they tested positive or before they started having symptoms. And then the infectious period looks at who they might have exposed by looking at who they were around from two days before the test or the start of um, symptoms uh, to whenever they started isolating. So it's, it's a long interview when we're doing the whole thing. It takes on average an hour to do each one uh, when we're doing the, that whole process, um, but it can take up to four hours sometimes. Uh, sometimes people have um, a lot of contacts and if we, uh, during, again, the full contact tracing process, we'll take down the information about their contacts. And as people have mixed more with each other, um, sometimes people can have almost 30 contacts um, that we then, for just one case, um, would have to follow up with, again, when we're able to do full contact tracing. So from there, it's determined how often they need monitoring calls. And we ask for their permission just to see um, how they're doing. Are they getting sicker? We ask about their symptoms um, and ask if it's okay if we call them, um, as well as providing education on, again, community resources, um, how the virus spreads, what they can do to keep their loved ones safe in their homes, anything they have questions about. We figure out if they need letters mailed to them. Um, if we're not able to reach the people, usually we send a letter to the address we have on file that just gives them some information. Um, and after that, uh, it heads over to the purple team. And the purple team do all our daily monitoring calls. And so they, of the cases that we're following right now, um, we've triage them into the people who are only at the very, very, very highest risk of spreading, um, because that's what we have the manpower for. Um, but we have uh, usually the contact uh, monitors will call and it's just a quick call usually about 15, 20 minutes. The first call can be longer um, and they just check in. How are you doing? What symptoms are you having? Have you gone into the hospital? Has anybody else you know tested positive? Uh, like in your household, you know, all those kinds of things, and just check in and make sure they're doing okay. That may happen daily. It may happen every other day. It may happen at the end of their isolation period. It just depends on what the team, um, based on our prioritization um, 
instructions what they what they need to do that time. Um, and then uh, they let um, we track if people are in the hospital or those kinds of things um, and uh, collect that sort of data. And then once they're done, if in the interview they share that like their brother was um, a positive case, then we follow up and make that person a case in the in the system as a uh, what was called a person of interest. Uh, excuse me, a person under investigation. I always mess that up. A PUI, person under investigation, and that just means someone who we think is probably positive or has a high. Um, possibility of being positive. And so we want to follow up with them. And so sometimes before the cases are even in calm care from the Department of Epidemiology, our tracers have found them um, and put them in already. Um, and so gotten kind of a head start in that way. So at the end, the purple team, um, usually when we're doing full contact tracing, will call them, just make sure they meet criteria for discharge from isolation. Um, and sometimes they um, provide letters that show that they are done with isolation if the person needs that. And then we uh, say goodbye and are happy that they're doing much better. Is it hard to exactly get effective work done? Because like, I don't know about you, but like you said, you said like you'll start with a phone call and sometimes like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't even answer phone calls from numbers I don't recognize I'm just like okay so like what is the situation if you just no one responds to the phone calls the letters nothing what, what's right. the case there well um we have um because a lot of people do as you said I'm the same way I don't answer usually if I don't know the number so we do leave a message to give people an opportunity to call us back um we have numbers for each of the teams um that were uh either that they can call um and respond at a time when it works for them um and that lets us get an interview done um if we aren't able to reach them after a couple of tries um we send the letter um and and that's all we're able to do um unfortunately we would love to be able to talk with every person um but because of the rate of cases um there's just we have to have a cutoff for that follow-up so we send them the letter um let them know you know hey it's just positive um here's some good stuff to do here's some important stuff to know um and then just kind of um, move move on to the next big pile of cases. Uh, could you tell me about some of the findings you found about COVID from contact tracing? Like something maybe others might not have seen that you have? You know, I think the most impactful thing um, that I've seen is just what it actually looks like when all the the data becomes a live person. I'm somebody who I really like the numbers. I really like research. Um, but listening to just the struggles um, that people are having, I think one of the most impactful conversations that I've had involves someone who had been really careful, um, had done all the right things and still got COVID and felt really guilty. They felt like they'd failed. And the message that we've worked really hard, because that, that becomes a pretty common feeling for people. Um, and the message we've tried really hard to get out is that's not a failure. Even if we do everything perfectly, it doesn't mean that we can eradicate the spread. It means that we can slow it. And so we can do all the right things and still get it. So I think helping people understand that, that, that they're not a failure in doing all the things that they tried to do um, and helping them to have some fresh motivation for continuing to take the, the precautions. Because I mean, if you, if you did all the things and it was really hard and then you still got the outcome you didn't want, it's hard to keep going and say, oh, I definitely want to keep doing these really hard things. Um, they're, they're really hard, you know, for families um, who they can't work um, when they're in quarantine or isolation and they really need to go back to work. And um, it's, it's causing a lot of stress um, in their families. So I think seeing the intersection of all the problems that we see on television really come to life um, in the lives of people has been, I think, the most notable thing to me. How have the results of your finding been important to not only understanding how the virus works, 
but how people should behave to reduce transmissions. That's been really fascinating to watch. You know, in the beginning, when everybody only had, when we when our numbers were much lower, um, we were able to do a much more complete contact tracing um, process. We were able to contact all contacts. We were able to, you know, follow up pretty much everybody on a daily basis. We were able to get them called earlier um, in terms of when their test date was and, and when we got them called consistently. Um, and we're still working for that. But with these advanced numbers, um, it, it really has changed what we're able to do. And so um, I think the data that we were getting initially and, and, and able to, to share the people we were able to contact who were possibly infectious and didn't know it to have them go get a test. I think that really helped to, to slow um, the rate of community spread. Um, but then when people's contacts started to grow towards the end of the summer um, and people again could have 20, 30 contacts. Um, if you think about if one person infects five people and then the next person infects five more people um, and then the next person like in all those people infect five more people the the rate of expansion with the with the virus is very very fast and so when we started we were really able to uh, limit community spread in a major way when people had fewer contacts and now that there are more contacts and and more just kind of more mixing with everybody as everybody experiences pandemic fatigue. Our work has shifted to, to education and just trying to keep track of how many people are in the hospital. So one of the things that another team working with us at UAA does is they do predictive modeling. So they take the stats that we gather for hospitalizations and that kind of thing, and they make uh, predictive trends about where things are going. They look at the numbers of cases, the rate of growth, how fast people are going into the hospital, how, um, what rate people are dying at, that kind of thing. Um, and they make some predictive models that allow the state to make decisions about what we need to do in response. Um, we also, they take down and re we report to them how many cases we're able to get done per um, number of contact tracer hours. So that lets them see, okay, if we have X amount of tracers working X amount of time, that means we'll be able to do to do X amount of cases. So it also, um, how much we're able to get done in a day projects what um, types of tracing we'll be able to do as the, as the uh, numbers continue to rise. So it kind of becomes a really complicated picture, but um, everything that, all the data that we're collecting is used to, um, to create models that help us be more proactive in how we plan the next step of response. Can you talk about the difficulties of tracing a super spreader? Yeah, absolutely. And and those come down to those people, you know, that you have a whole, you know, 30 contacts or a huge event. Um, as you've probably seen in the paper, sometimes we're not able to actually do it, which is why we've closed a lot of the bars, for example, in Anchorage and that kind of thing. Because what was happening was um, there wasn't really a way to contact trace there. You know, we would try to reach people, but it was real spotty on who we could reach. Um, and then we didn't know who all was in the bar. Like, you know, two people could go to a bar and not know each other, but be close enough to to spread it. So you don't necessarily know who all your contacts are. Um, so when that happens, um, the state makes decisions about where they need to put out um, messages that let people know, hey, there was a big exposure in this place and we have a, a cluster now in this place. So if you were in this place during this time, you need to get tested. So that would be like the most broad general um, way of doing it. But um, when we're trying to trace, trace um, people who have had contact with a large number of people, um, we try to get good information um, from them about who their contacts were. And sometimes that's when the investigative part comes in because sometimes you ask someone, um, where did you go in the last three days? And they'll say, oh, I didn't go anywhere. Um, and, I, and they're being truthful. It's just, it didn't pop to mind that they went to Walmart and you know they 
drop that thing off at their friend's house really quick or whatever. So this tracers really have to spend a lot of time when they're doing that kind of tracing to just sort of tease out, like ask questions um, that, that are more than just who have you seen in the last three days that say, did you have a sporting event that you went to? Did your kids have practice anywhere? Did you go to the store? Did you have to go to the post office? Were there any errands you ran? Do you wanna, can you look back um, even like at uh, where you spent money that day? And can you look back at who you called that day and that kind of thing to help remember? So it can be a pretty involved process just to get the list of people that need to be notified. After that, um, if you have 30, <laughs> let's say 30 contacts and each initial contact interview takes 30 minutes from one case, um, you now have just a 15 hours of work to do just from one person um, to get their contacts notified. And each of those contacts in those 15 hours um, could be another another case that has another 30 contacts. Um, and, and as you see, like that gets, that gets pretty intense, pretty fast. Um, because if you have that, that now adds up to almost two full days of work for one tracer, um, just on the first, first level of that. Um, and then you add in the second level, following up with the contacts that can just expand it out. So it just becomes so important for, um, people to be aware of who they're around because we just don't ever know um, if we're infectious or not. We don't know. There's such a high rate of, of a lack of symptoms, especially in the beginning where you're still infectious, but you, but you don't know it. Um, at our house, we keep, uh, we have a little mask station and then we have what we call the contact um, tracing book. And when we come in and out of the house, we just write um, who we had contact with so that we can always remember and always know. So it becomes pretty complex um, because every situation is different um, and the numbers just go up really fast um, when you have a lot of people exposed at once. We'll be right back. Even though all of us at Atme have been working from home during the pandemic, we are still looking for youth to join our team. As a producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24 living in Alaska and interested in joining ATME, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Ryan's interview with Annie Thomas. So what was it first like when you became a contact tracer? Were you nervous? Were you excited? Were you, what was it like? I like to think about that time as kind of just the wild west of, of the tracing. We um, originally, our team was just going to, to train people to be part of the state of Alaska's um, teams. But over time, um, it just became necessary for us to be able to manage our own teams. So just imagine, I like to say it kind of like medic tents in the field. It's a lot like that because you've got people who aren't ever working in the same place um, who are all new to the process and who there wasn't any man, like there wasn't any, um, you know, when you come into a business, usually there's a whole structure for managing people and doing scheduling and all of that stuff. And there wasn't any of that. And so for those first of us, I think when I came on, there were 20 of us, maybe, maybe 15. Um, and it was just a really collaborative time. I listened in on calls for a few days. Um, and then the first day I started, I actually had people listening in to my calls to train, um, which was super scary because it seems like when you're looking at the form, oh, this is easy. And I've been a nurse for a long time. And, um, you know, you just ask the questions and whatever. But then when you're on the phone with a real person, um, you kind of get those butterflies in your stomach and you feel like you're going to mess it up. And then you think, oh my gosh, I practiced, 
um, figuring the isolation date and the quarantine date, but what if I get it wrong? And what if I tell them that, you know, the isolation ends sooner than it does, and then they go out and infect people because of what I told them? Um, what if I, I, I tell them the wrong things in any other areas? What if, um, what if they have needs that I don't know how to meet? What if they say that they don't have any food and all I can do is give them a number? Um, or a couple contacts and, and not know if that is taken care of. Like, what, what do I do? And what do I do if somebody gets angry at me? You know, when I, we, it's, it's not a common situation, but we do have times when um, people, you know, swear at our, our tracers and get very angry, um, think that the tracers are making up information or telling them things that aren't true. Um, and, and so that can be really scary. And, you know, you never know what the call is going to be like. Most of the calls, I would say 99% of the calls, people are very grateful. People are very willing to help the community. People are very eager to, to make sure that they don't spread it further. Um, but when you pick up the phone and you don't ever quite know what's about to happen or how it's about to go, um, it gets really scary. And then I think you get so focused on what you're doing, you forget to do things like go to the bathroom and drink and eat and those little simple things. And then all of a sudden you're all balled up in a ball of tension and you feel like somebody ran over you with a truck by the end of your shift. So um, the people who are doing the tracing, it's really a labor of love. It's, it's, it's an outreach to the community um, that is, is unique. And a lot of our tracers are people who are retired um, students. Um, sometimes I, we call ourselves the band of misfits because we're just, we're just all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds coming together to do a job that hasn't ever needed to be done in this way before um, in a very chaotic time um, in our nation's history. And so every day is different. Um, I think it was really fulfilling to know that, um, that I was able to to give information to people who didn't have it, to try to answer questions, to try to get them resources and help, to be able to help paint the picture of what um, what it's like to have COVID in Alaska. So I feel really honored to get to be a part of it. So what qualified you for this work and what can others do to become a contact tracer? And what has been kind of an inspiration to help you keep going as well? So for me, my background in nursing, um, we had uh, two, three different levels of contact tracers. So tier threes are people who are supervisors and who um, have, you know, are either nurses or doctors or providers of some sort like that. Um, tier twos are people who have experience in the medical field, not necessarily um, nurses or doctors, but have experience in the field. And tier one are people who really don't have any background um, in the medical field at all, but just really want to help. And so for me, I, I have a master's degree in nursing leadership and administration. Um, and so coming on board, that tier three position was a pretty natural one for me. And then there was just a lot of opportunities to find new, new ways to help the team and new positions to be in because that is kind of what I like to think of as a battlefield promotion. You know, you kind of move up the ranks fast when, when you're doing those. So um, then for, for people who are interested now, there is a flyer um, that I can uh, send to you guys that you can post if you'd like to. Um, and you can, you're also welcome to post my email address and they can ask for more information. Um, we're still trying to figure out, we've hired about 200 tracers now. And so we're just trying to figure out how many, and we've had, what was it? I think we've had 600 people at least go through the course um, to learn how to become contact tracers. So the first step is going through that course. Um, and so we're not sure if we're going to have more people, like are we're gonna be able to okay more people to come through the course or we're going to be um, shutting that off. Um, so I would just encourage people uh, to get in contact with us either through the information on the flyer or through through emailing me and we will, I would rather have people ask and have to say we're not doing it right now um, than 
than to miss people who um, would be wonderful additions to the team and that we would definitely like to have on board. So it's a long process. I will say that um, there's a lot of moving parts. And so anyone who applies, it's kind of the first test of flexibility, determination, and patience. Um, can you get through the, the training and the hiring process? And if you do, um, you're probably pretty well suited because that's exactly what you need to be a contact tracer. You need flexibility for your job to change every single day. Um, you need determination uh, to work through stuff that's constantly getting kind of messed up and having to figure out a workaround and that kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you go through the course, you complete the course, and then um, you go from there with the hiring process if we move forward. That being said, do you feel that you have enough staff and resources right now? Because uh, the Alaska cases are getting higher and higher. Yeah, you know, um, we have added 50 tracers to the to to actually those who are working in the last two to three weeks um so when you think about our team is almost 150 now um that's adding a third to the team um within a couple of weeks which is just craziness if you think about it like it's been crazy but everybody's been awesome and working so hard to make sure um that those folks get onboarded and and set um i think we are open to either and and just again the state of alaska we're the surge workforce which means that we supplement whatever the state needs um and so right now we're working on our initial charge um to get 200 people on the schedule and working so we've got about another 40 or so to get on the schedule 50 maybe to have them working and then we're just waiting to hear um, what the state would would like us to do. And so we're happy to to stay where we are or to move up. There's always more work. And, and so we work really hard, not only to bring on more tracers, but we've also found ways to make the tracing process a lot more efficient because um, our systems manager, she is phenomenal um, with looking at time-saving stuff and making things more efficient. And so one of the exciting things is we've actually been able to increase the amount of cases we're able to handle without increasing our tracers that much. So we're kind of trying to come at it from both angles and just continually take as much as we can. Can you go a little bit into what Managing Me Enterprises does? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in general, when there's not a pandemic, um, Managing Me does retreats um, for teams to help them to just um, build community cohesion and resilience within them to find out who they are and who they want to be as a team. So when COVID hit, um, I started developing a course called the COVID Resilience Recovery Program. And it's just a free resource that um, has most of the first three or the first units written and the next ones will be coming out soon. But it's mostly it's for um, healthcare workers, nurses, um, leaders. And so that was really fun. That was that was a cool thing to be able to put together. And uh, after that, this the um, uh, uh, part of UAA contracted me to do some webinars. So now I do every other week webinars for nurses or for nursing leaders on alternating um, alternating times. And we just talk about what's going on and, and what we can do, how we can notice ourselves and what we need and how our needs have changed, um, how we can cope, how the things that we have to cope with right now are working and what we might need to add, and then how we can draw good boundaries to stay um, in a good place. Um, so really focusing on the mental health side of it um, within the nursing community and the medical community in general, uh, especially up in Alaska, um, you know, we already had a nursing shortage going into this. And um, looking at rates of burnout, burnout and, and compassion fatigue, which is basically just getting to a place where emotionally you can't care about people in the same way um, because you just don't, you don't have it. You don't have any fuel in the tank for it. And so um, the things that lead to burnout and compassion fatigue are really um, the same that all the things that we're seeing happening in COVID, um, 
constant changes, having to deal with um, death and dying on a regular basis. And in this situation, sometimes being the only people that are at the bedside when people are dying because their family can't come in and be with them. Um, personal stresses, because everybody's still going through the pandemic themselves. Um, it's hard to keep all of the regulations straight and those change a lot. And so having to do things with less resources than we'd normally have. And so for the medical community, I think there's a really good chance the longer that the pandemic goes on, um, if people don't take really good care of themselves, if they don't um, look at what they need, um, then they will get burnout and they won't be able to continue. Um, for my team, I, I try to use as many of the principles that I teach with managing me in the surge team. So one thing that I say to my team members a lot is um, that it's my job to ask them to do more because that's, that's just what my job is. But what I need them to do is be willing to say no um, when they can't, when it's not healthy for them. Um, I need to know that I can trust them to not extend beyond where they are and to really run this as a marathon and not a sprint. You know, emergencies come up all the time. Um, and so in, in everything I do, the webinars, the work, whatever it is, um, just trying to remind everybody, um, we could easily feel that pressure to, to respond to everything um, in the highest level of emergency mode. Um, but because it doesn't look like this is stopping anytime soon, um, we have to be able to pace ourselves. We have to be able to recognize the resources we have. Um, and one of our tracers, Rhonda, she's, and, and our leaders, she's amazing because she always says, just remember, if we weren't doing this, then we wouldn't be doing anything. So we're always doing something and something is better than nothing. And I think that's been really good. So with managing me, I just try to take those principles and share them um, with nurses and nursing leaders. Um, and then the general public, I'll be coming out with a COVID resilience recovery course for the general public really soon as well. Um, and so, yeah, just trying to, to use the resources I have to make sure that um, I support the community in any way that I can. Uh, so what effect has COVID had on you and your family? Um, thanks. That's such a sweet question. You know, um, well, it's hard to even, even start to think back to when, when it all changed. But for us, I think um, my girls are 9 and 11, and they were um, in school um, last spring. Um, and they came home for spring break, and they never went back. Um, that was, that was the end. And so, um, you know, the first part of the pandemic, um, during kind of the, the Tiger King bake bread and, you know, clean your house phase, um, we just really tried to do a lot of fun stuff, give some structure, get them used to not seeing their friends and that kind of stuff, really let them know what was going on. Um, but as it stretched on longer, I think our focus has, has been how can we as a family create the community that we need just within our little house um, to, to help everybody be healthy through this time. So we've done a lot of stuff. Um, my husband's really into D&D &D and he leads a couple groups. And so he taught us to play D&D. &D. Um, I don't think we were as good at it as his real groups, but it was a good valiant try. Uh, we tried to learn cake decorating. Um, we did this chalk art project on this wall of our house that we kept that was really fun. Um, we did little, um, little neighborhood outreach stuff like at Easter and that kind of thing just to try to stay in touch with people without being able to be in the same place. We've done karaoke with family over Zoom and, you know, remote birthday parties and all of that. Um, so, I think that's been a big change. Um, my kids are homeschooling this year, um, which was not expected, um, but is what we're doing. And so that's been an adventure. Um, I looked up from what I was doing the other day and I was trying to put the schedule out for about a hundred people. I was trying to homeschool my kids and work through the math stuff they were doing. I was answering emails, had laundry, in, in the laundry and then uh, going. And then I was also monitoring an Instacart order to see if they got all the stuff at the grocery store. And I was like, oh, well, this is a fun, 
very different. Okay, we're doing this. This is good. I also think I hit uh, an interesting point of pandemic mania when I got a kitten and a bunny within 24 hours um, of each other because that seemed like a good idea at the time. So Groot and Rocket are um, very happy additions to our family, but it was a little much there for a minute. So I think, um, and my husband changed schedules at work to be able to moved to homeschooling the girls in the morning because it was clearly not effective the way I was doing it. So I I think um, there's a lot of loss in not being able to make our normal trips down to see family and not being able to, you know, have the birthday parties and and the holiday events that we want to. Um, But on the other hand, um, we've also really just enjoyed the time that we've spent together and and kind of reorienting our family around some new things. And we have decided after all this is over, um, we're having a huge all the holidays party and we're going to decorate with all the holidays and have all the holiday foods and play all the holiday music. So you should come because it's going to be super fun someday when we can do that. And uh, yeah, so that my kids now think that every holiday between now and then is just a practice run for our big um, all the holidays party. It's nice. So what do you propose people do to stay safe right now? Mm, this is a great question. Um, I think for all of us, everyone has pandemic fatigue. There's just no way around it. And all of the research shows that that is really what's driving um the case count right now is because we're so tired. And I have felt that myself. I've just been like, you know what, forget it. It's not that smart, but I just want to do, you know, X, Y, Z with whoever. Um, so that's been really hard. So I think the first thing um, is just acknowledge how tired we all are, acknowledge how hard this is, um, acknowledge the grief and the loss that we have, acknowledge the needs that aren't being met. Um, acknowledge that it's scary, that we don't know when this is going to end, and that it's just a real drag all the way around um, to have to wake up and do this every single day. Um, I think um, on a practical level, the small household groups are really what's spreading a lot, even people who have small bubbles. So if you do have people outside your household that you get together with, try to uh, gather outside, try to um, maintain social distancing, um, wear masks, uh, wash your hands, all that good stuff. Um, limit the, the public spaces that you're going into as much as possible. Um, and again, in those spaces, wear a mask, stay six feet away, wash your hands. I carry hand sanitizer pretty much everywhere now, so that's always good. And if you feel like you might have been infected, if you feel like um, you are sick, um, just begin to quarantine right away um, and get a test sooner rather than later. Um, that's going to be the key. And then as you do that, um, really take a good look at what you need in a very practical way. What, what do you need to be able to see this to the end? Um, if we're going to do all that stuff, if let's say um, we're mostly just going to hang with our families at home and we're going to shop on Instacart and do not very much, you know, get three months to the gallon on our cars because we don't ever go anywhere. Um, What do you need to make that sustainable and and look at it in a really honest way? Um, Yesterday, I was doing a webinar. I talked about um, letting yourself have little extravagances and it doesn't mean blowing a lot of money or, you know, doing destructive things. But like for me, I, and I was kind of embarrassed to admit this to be honest, but I take a nap every day, pretty much. I schedule my meetings and everything else so that I can take a nap. And uh, to me, that feels like a huge extravagance um, because I'm like, I'm 40. I'm not like six, you know, or 107. It seems like you could really do without napping during the day, but no, right now, you know, there's a whole host of problems when I don't nap and it's a lot better when I do. So if there are things that it feels like your body needs, your soul needs, your mind needs during this time. Just be really, just be really gentle with yourself. Be really generous to yourself. Be generous to the people around you because this wears on us in ways that I don't even think we're going to realize until it's over. So what is, besides your, what sounds like to be epic party, what is your plan for after all this pandemic stuff is? Because 
I would think after we got this all under control, we won't really need contact tracers. Yeah, no, such a good question. So uh, I'm working right now. I'm actually also, um, cause I'm a crazy person, um, working on a doctorate. Um, I'm uh, working on a doctorate in nursing and then I'm halfway done with a, a doctorate in psychology that someday will be finished, I hope. So um, those, uh, expanding, managing me. And then before this, I was actually a, a nursing educator. I was teaching in a nursing school and I, I love teaching. I love um, my students. I love my grandma. I'm a third generation nurse. Both my grandmas were nurses. I became a nurse. My mom became a nurse when she was 57 um, because she's a rock star. My sister is now in nursing school. Um, so we just have a long tradition of nursing um, in our family. And my, my grandma was actually a dean of a nursing school. So I'm really excited to do that. And uh, we've promised our kids um, that in celebration of my husband retiring from the military and COVID and everything else, um, we're going to Harry Potter world. So we're really, <laughs> we're very excited about that. Alrighty, well, that's all the questions I had for you today. Thank you for coming in and talking to us. Thank you so much. I loved all your questions. I just am, I'm so honored to be on your show and thanks for having me. That was at me producer Ryan Danigal speaking with Annie Thomas, project manager for the UAA Surge contact tracing team. You've been listening to Podcast in Place, youth stories from quarantine from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost with additional music by Kendrick Whiteman. Stay tuned for more stories from quarantined youth. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, along with included resources for youth during quarantine in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including John O'Hara, James McCoy, United Way of Anchorage, the Alaska Humanities Forum, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of the National Endowment for the Humanities or other sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help us out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Rowan Pickard. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there.